You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. I want to be a producer. Hey, everybody. If you have a question you've been dying to ask about Broadway, off-Broadway, or frankly anything, I'm having a free town hall teleseminar on Wednesday, December 2nd at 7 p.m. If you go to the blog, all the details are there. Wednesday, December 2nd, 7 p.m., everyone on the phone and me asking all sorts of questions, and hopefully I'll come up with some good answers. We'll see you then. Check out the blog for more info. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, kentdavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's kentdavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Producer's Perspective podcast. I'm Ken Davenport, and today we have a first on the podcast. Our guest today is the first ever costume designer we've had. How do you feel about that? Well, I'm honored. It's amazing. I'm here with none other than two-time Tony Award winner Greg Barnes. Welcome, Greg. Welcome to everybody. I literally just passed those two Tony Awards. I'm sitting in Greg's house right now, right there. You know, it's funny. A lot of times people will come visit me and they'll say, where do you keep them? And I say they're right, sitting right there, and they're they're not very ostentatious though. So you have to have an eagle eye to spot them. Uh, well, they're shining in the light right now. <laughs> we'll spin them in a little bit. Uh, so Greg won those two Tony Awards for the Broadway productions of The Drowsy Chaperone and Follies. Uh, his other Broadway credits. Okay, ready? This could take a while. Sideshow, Flower Drum Song, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Legally Blonde, To Be or Not To Be, Bye Bye Birdie, Elf, Kinky Boots, Aladdin, Something Rotten, and this season's Tuck Everlasting. Whew. Done a ton of off-Broadway regional and all sorts of other work, including the Radio City Christmas Spectacular, right, in 2003? Did that for, yeah, I did it actually for about 10 years. 10 years? Yeah. Ooh, we'll get to that. Rocket stories coming, <laughs> sure. Uh, some film and TV, but of course, I remember him when I was a sophomore at NYU, and he taught a costume class. And I want to thank you for that because you actually made me realize that the wardrobe room is the last place on earth <laughs> that I should be. So you're really responsible for me being a producer. So wow. Thank you Imagine probably thousands of kids I, I turned off to the wardrobe room. So how did you decide that the wardrobe room was for you? Where my yeah, where, where did it start? Out. Well, you know, I, was, uh, I grew up in San Diego and I uh, was a literature major in college. I thought I would teach high school and be the drama guy. And all my family, my dad, and all my aunts and uncles, of which I have a lot, were all educators. And so I didn't really have a vision of working professionally in the theater, for sure. But I took some scenic classes and some design classes because I thought, well, the drama guy needs to know how to put a show together. And I took this costume history class. And it was, you know, just... You sit in a room and you're hearing words you've heard a thousand times and all of a sudden they have a different meaning to you. And it just sucked me in. I I didn't have to take notes. I remembered every single thing that teacher said. And at the end of that, I was just about to graduate, actually. I was in my fourth year of undergrad. And that teacher said, we have a guest designer coming in to talk to our master's students. Would you mind chatting with him? And I didn't really have a vision of why I would do that. I didn't, you know, but I said, sure, I'll, 
I, I, I'd love to meet people. I'll go talk to him. So I went and sat with Robert Morgan, who designed the Fomonti and the Grinch and uh, is an incredible, incredible person and an incredible designer. And he saw something in me that was, believe me, to say raw is an understatement, but he said, you should go to NYU. And I honestly don't even know why I listened to him. But a year later, I found myself auditioning to come to New York. And so I... In 1980, I, I began that uh, process, and and in 1983, when I got out of school, I got hired by the undergraduate department. I was a grad student, but they have the, and the departments are separate. But so the reason that I met you was because I was from 1983 on for well the next 20 years I taught in the undergraduate department at NYU. So what was the first thing you designed? Wow. Back in a community college in uh, El Cajon, California, I did a production of The Mad Woman of Chaillot. That was the first thing. And the second one, not that you asked, but the second one was this epic production of the of Alice in Wonderland. And honestly, I didn't draw, I didn't sew. I was so useless. I, I didn't know anything. But again, you know, it's it's funny how sometimes I think people believe in you, in it, not more than you believe in yourself. That comes with experience. But I got handed this design project, uh, and uh, we made this pretty magical production of Alice in Wonderland. And since that, even though I was a literature major, not that Alice in Wonderland isn't major literature, but my career has been largely doing circuses, ice shows, musicals, spectacular kind of event sort of design. So it's, it's funny that it found me quite early. So one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is I get to learn so much about areas that I'm not that familiar with in wardrobe and costume design ever since I ran screaming from that classroom <laughs> is one of those areas. But talk to me about that. I always assume that you, you have to know how to sew. You have to know how to stitch in order to design. Is that true, or do you just have to have a visual eye? How does it? Yeah, you know, it's funny. It's probably true in every discipline in the theater. Uh, but as a costume designer, if you say you have a very strong sense of how to make a thing happen, that can make a career. Uh, you may be weaker at uh, maybe maybe your forte isn't visualizing unique worlds, but you know. It's almost, I think all of us are paraplegic in a way. Like we have a, some part of us that's very strong. And then if you're lucky enough to get far enough along, you hire people to be your weaker self. And somehow that is a bonus because you have this alchemy of a collective that becomes a fortress. And, and I think that everybody you talk to has a kind of family that they travel with for a certain number of years even as a designer with your assistants, your associates, but then even within the community of, uh, say, you're hired to design a certain project, you probably have worked with that director many times before because you speak a common kind of language. So I love to draw and paint, for instance. Not every designer has it can be intimidating to some people, and it's not even important. It's It's a funny thing. I like it because... For me, it answers a million questions. And if you if you do tear sheets or just pencil drawings or have a, more, a rougher, more casual approach to it, you have to answer all these questions at some point in the process because the shop is going to want to need to know, you know, what scale, how big, how many, what color, all of these questions. And 
if you've drawn and paint, painted it, you eliminate a lot of them. But you know, a lot of people do spectacular, beautiful work without using that skill. You know, they may be uh, better at selling an idea, or better at getting the job, or better at. Uh, obviously, you have to have all of these things in some, you know, uh, a potpourri of these skills. But I find that sometimes your your strength is the thing you should you know like celebrate and work on the other parts of of your skill set. So, what's your strength? I think that I hope this is true. I, I I try to be a very good listener in the early stages because clothes are expensive to build, and you don't want to make a mistake. I never ever ever sneak around in dark corners saying, oh, they'll love this when they see it. Never, ever, ever. Uh, I try to, as much as I can, you know, get a... a, a, Because a lot of times, especially in the early meetings with a director, there's many things at work. For one thing, if it's a new piece, it's not fully developed. You don't have any uh, history with it to refer to. And also, they may have a strong opinion about something, but you have to learn how to listen to what the thing that they aren't saying, or they may be saying it in one way, but what they desire is you to take that information and turn it into a different visual idea than maybe what their initial instinct is. So you have to listen to the words, but also to listen to the ideas behind them. And and then, you know, when I draw and paint, it takes a lot of time. It's a very laborious process but when I get into the fitting room that information I strictly see it as information I don't try to like I'm just assuming this but I think like in the fashion world when you get into the fitting room you're trying to realize that sketch I'm trying to help an actor tell a story so I'm the first one if somebody if I drew a skirt and they say pants I say that let's talk about pants and skirt I don't really care about skirts I care about things that tell stories so uh, I try to be really, really flexible in the fitting room. And uh, you know, sometimes it gets you into trouble. It's all, it's all a, you know, you, you draw something, hopefully it pleases the director or the actor, and then when you realize that it can be a disappointment and you need to regroup. And so th- you have to be quick on your feet in the costume business. So talk to me a little bit about your process. You're sitting in this beautiful armchair. <laughs> I never... <laughs> I, I love coming to designers' homes, by the way. I wish there was video right now because it's stunning in here. Uh, but I want you to imagine someone comes to you and says, Greg, we're doing a musical based on this armchair. Okay. Go. Uh, what, what's the first thing you do? Well, I guess I would want to know first if there is an arc, what the arc of the story is. For instance, do we start off on a rickety old stool and end up, by the end of the evening, in a plushy armchair? And from that, whatever that information is, I get on the internet or I get into my books or I get into a world of immersing myself. And I don't necessarily, in in using this metaphor, look at chairs. I may look at rugs, walls, clothing, paintings. I've, I've become a big fan of Pinterest, if, if people know about that amazing aid to designers. And what will happen is I'll type in, you know, skirt, 1860. And within that search, somebody will have, for instance, posted a, a wood block, uh, uh, like a, a block that you would use to, to block out a pattern onto a textile. And I'll think, oh, that's interesting. What is what is that about? And then I'll find out, oh, look, there was an influx of 
because of the Crimean War, there's an influx of Turkish textile design in this period. And if it's relevant to the story, I can glean and collect all of this information so that when I sit down to draw, eventually, I have a world much greater than just what you can find in a costume history textbook. So sometimes I'll take that information to the director without any drawings at all and just let them talk and let them dream and together try to find our uh, the clues that are going to lead us down the design path. Sometimes I'll also just sketch things in pencil. But often I just share the research. Then the next step, of course, is to start to draw. And I do that quite quickly. Uh, I share that information. And say I have 25 drawings. If five of them are, uh, I see, oh, an immediate response to, I'll take those five and flesh them out and I'll let the other fifth, you know, the other, the remainder of what the director didn't really seem to have a, a real, you know, excited sort of response to, I'll let that stuff percolate and revisit it and change. And then I'll start to paint just a few things, like say if it's a musical, I'll do one woman in the ensemble in the 11 o'clock moment. And if they respond to that, then I'll start to flush it out. If they don't, I, it's easy for me to throw that away and develop another idea. So it's a lot of back and forth. It's like a, a ebb and flow of a tide almost. And hopefully each time you have a meeting or you develop, you're, you're making steps towards the eventual design. So obviously Armchair would be a totally original piece. <laughs> You've done a lot of work, obviously, on some shows that have had source material. Uh-huh. Legally Blonde, Aladdin. Uh-huh. Do you like to go back to that original source material and take a look, or do you stay away from it altogether? I actually, I do. I love it, actually. I, I'm shamelessly fearless about uh, looking at what has come before me. And I can use Legally Blonde as an example. And actually, if it's okay, I'll talk a little bit about Aladdin as well. With Legally Blonde, when I watched the film, there's a lot of witty design work in the film. But what I realized was that even though I'm, I'm seeing this film on probably, I think it was a VCR tape, it might have been a, v, uh, a, a DVD, I don't remember, but that it had already dated itself. And I thought, oh, we're developing a project that hopefully will have appeal for many, many years to come. And even though we didn't run all that long on Broadway, I've done it as recently as a year and a half ago in Vienna. So it's, it's something that you know, has, has had a life beyond its Broadway uh, appearance. And, you know, it was very successful on the road. We did it on the West End. It won the Olivier. So, so I try, I thought, oh, how can I take the wit of what th- that designer, and I don't even remember the name, I apologize to that designer, and figure out a way to make it timeless. So I didn't actually quote visually anything from the film that I can remember. But I started to, within the context of the story of Legally Blonde, try to figure out a way to do some subconscious storytelling. For instance, when Elle goes to uh, Harvard, the, the students that she encounters there, who are very different, obviously, from her Los Angeles princess peeps, I thought, oh, these kids probably come from generations of their dads came to Harvard or their, they have a history. She's, she's a fish out of water in many ways. So we designed, or I designed a, a lot of clothing that looked like, oh, maybe the blazer was handed down. This was the dad's lucky blazer from the 1960s. And then I paired that with a young person's, you know, more hip sort of uh, styling. A friend of mine was up in Boston 
uh, doing the out of town for high fidelity. And I called her and I said, go to Harvard Yard and take pictures of the kids. And of course, what came back to me were dirty t-shirts and jeans. And it wasn't, it didn't have the sort of style that I was looking for. But within that, I could use some of those things. With Aladdin, uh, what was really useful about looking at the the original artwork. It's a beautiful film. Casey Nicolau had said, I want to honor the animation. So when I looked at it, it becomes very evident that the backgrounds in, a, in an animated uh, film are elaborate. And the people, because they have to draw them so much, so many times per second to make them move and make natural movement, are actually quite col- simple and color-blocked. So I thought, oh, I even though those clothes have a lot of texture and a lot of design, graphic design within them, I tried to make them have the sense of animation in terms of having a color-blocked feeling. I didn't quote the film, but I have to, I have to qualify that because I did a lot, actually. But in, in, in 95% of the show doesn't look like the animated movie. The only place where I did really use the animators' original ideas were on Jasmine and Aladdin and Jafar because I thought, well, if I was a child and I love this film and I go see Aladdin, I want to instantly know who my hero is, who, if you're a Jasmine fan, I want you to instantly have a, a, a like a pulse almost of excitement when that... So, I, I mean, it's a very sophisticated version of the film, but it's, you know, the color, the breakup, the hair, all of that stuff is pays homage to the film. Yeah, there is, you do have an obligation to, these people have an expectation of what they're going to see. Exactly. see that you'll disappoint them to some extent. Yeah. You know, when I was a kid, uh, my, my family were not theater goers. They were more little leaguers and, you know, we were quick to dash off to a football game and I always wanted to see a show. So my dad would take us to see the circus when it came the events at the sports arena ice shows that kind of thing and i remember being maybe seven or eight years old and a, a, a touring production came through that was called disney on parade and it was before ice shows before now they do a lot of disney ice shows but and i was a little kid i i loved those albums that they had you know there was there were no if the movie wasn't new you didn't you only knew it through these records and so the, the, I remember sitting in that sports arena in the darkened light and then those big soundtracks they always have and feeling this incredible rush of joy. And when I work on a thing that has a kid and where a kid is, is part of that audience, I always try to somehow help get that feeling so that that experience happens for that child in, in the way that I felt it when I was a kid. You talked a lot, obviously, about the collaboration required for a director and a costume designer. It seems to be you're getting a lot of feedback and instructions, if you will, from mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. What about the writers? Do you collaborate with the writers? Do you do you like a writer that says in the stage directions, she's wearing a long pink gown <laughs> that goes to her toes? I, or, I do, actually. I mean, oftentimes what that long pink gown might turn into a pantsuit you know, it happens, but at least you know that they're, they are visual and that they are visualizing things. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, two projects that I've worked on, one being The Drowsy Chaperone and the other being, um, see, they were both with Casey. What was the other one? It might have been, been Elf, but 
I start to do my process and we chart everything out. And, we, and you realize, oh, they have a scene. I use, let me use the Drowsy Chaperone as an example. They have a scene that's set at night. They talk about the bride singing a lament to the moon. So I go back to Casey and I say, oh, obviously this wedding takes place over two days. I'm assuming the wedding is the following morning. And he says, oh, no, no, it's just one day. I said, oh, well, is it a nighttime wedding? Well, no, a nighttime wedding doesn't really sound right. So I say, well, in the dramaturgy as it's currently set up, and at this point nobody's done the Drowsy Chaperone, it's a completely new piece, and I say, they, they say here the bride sings a limit to the moon. So he says, let me get back to you. And he goes to Bob Martin and all of the amazing writers. And they then insert into the script, the man in chair, if you know that piece, says, well, of course, it's ridiculous because it's the middle of the afternoon. So what's great about being part of a new project is that you become part of the dramaturgy of the story, in a sense, by the questions you ask. And in fact, back to Drowsy Chaperone, there's a, I did a sketch for Georgia Engel of her first dress, and the song was called Fancy Dress, but when they saw the sketch, and I, I made the dress be 10 years earlier than the 20s, it was uh, as if it was her favorite dress from another time in her life, and they saw the sketch, and then they elaborated on the fancy dress. So it became, the lyric then evolved because everybody thought it was funny that she was dressed up in this anachronistically fancy dress. So I love that. I love that we get to be part of, you know, the bigger picture as well. So you said something that would make all the producers out there happy earlier and that you you uh, don't want to build anything until you know everyone's uh. on the same page because things are so expensive. <laughs> so imagine I come to you today and, and I say, Greg, we're gonna we're gonna make this armchair the musical. <laughs> what and it's gonna be a medium to, you know, sized musical off the top of your head, what do you say? Oh, well, Ken, you need X dollars for mm. me to do that right. What's the average budget for a Broadway sure. musical these days? You know what's interesting? My Broadway debut, which was 20 years ago, I believe, was Sideshow. And I, I had the huge benefit and gift of working with uh, this gentleman, Scott Traugott, who is a, the A-list associate. He's the, was, you know, he's the guy you want to have. And he explained to me, this was, it was very simple. He said, let's chart out the show as we know it, it might change, but as of today, let's do a count of all the costumes. So say there's a hundred. We take a figure, it's a generic figure, but we take $5,000 and we times that by a hundred, which is $500,000. Now some of the costumes will cost much less than that, but some of them might cost four times that. But it gives us a ballpark so that when we go in and we say, Ken, we think this might be an appropriate number. And you say, oh my gosh, we've only raised half of that amount. So we then know, well, we have a problem and we could regroup, we could do this, we could, maybe we can find money here, find money there, make this compromise. And you, you know, in turn, what often happens is we'll come back with a figure that's maybe in the middle or somewhere in in that gray area. So sometimes the the process is... Uh, the back is it's always back and forth, and even when you have a show that's lavishly budgeted, inevitably it's. I hate to say this, but it's never it's never enough money. It isn't just the cost of getting the costumes created; it's also the cost of maintaining the costumes, that just the the running 
process. It costs a lot of money. So if I said to you, I, well, we could do this this way, but it means that it's going to fall apart sooner. Or we could, instead of having three pairs of shoes, they could have one pair of shoes, but they'll fall apart that much faster. It might be more efficient financially or more responsible financially to have two pairs of shoes. And that way they share the burden of the wear and we can go a year or however long we can go before we have to make new shoes. So everybody's sort of, obviously you, you go into every project hoping, assuming, wanting it to be a huge hit. And if there's money, then those questions become easier to navigate. But in the beginning, you know, you never know what will capture a, an audience's imagination. I'll never forget when I was an assistant company manager on Showboat, I think it was my first big job, and I got a bill for a pair of boots for somebody at like $1,800. Yeah, yeah. Just talk, you did it a little bit there, but talk to me a little bit more about why these things, whether it's boots or whether it's a gown or whether it's a bra, whatever it is, Cost why so are they so expensive? You know, uh, for one thing, of course, we live in New York City and, and all of us uh, have to pay exorbitant amounts of rent. And and, and, and for a shop, a, a big shop like Barbara Materos, who is no longer with us, but a Tricorn, which is a very big shop, they have an exorbitant amount of overhead. That's one part of it. The other thing about costumes, which is sort of interesting, and I, I was giving you that example of that the $5,000 figure, that was 20 years ago. Now that figure, has not only has it not gotten any higher, it's actually gotten lower. So costumes actually cost, I think, they might cost less than they did 20 years ago, or maybe equivalent. This isn't really answering the question about why things are so expensive, but, but I, I have a little bit more to say about that as well. But it is interesting that the people that go into this, uh, probably in almost every, if you're an actor, you really want to act. If you make a lot of money in that process, that's a perk. Or a, you know, Some people want to be a movie star, and, but for I think most people, we do it because we have this passion to tell story, in my case. I do it through design in a shop's case. They do it through creating those designs. I don't know any costume shop that walked away from the business at the end of their life a billionaire or even um, they may be a nice middle-class citizen financially. So we, you know, we do it because we're passionate about it. Another thing that makes um, costumes expensive is that it's all one of a kind. You know, you develop uh, something... And there is a learning curve. I, I can go back to my I drew a skirt, you want to wear pants example. They've mocked up a skirt. If it turns into pants, they most often do not bill an additional cost. They've, they, the process is the process in their, in their eyes. If you were building a swimming pool and you said, I, I don't want a jacuzzi, and then you decided you wanted a jacuzzi, you would pay for a jacuzzi. You know what I mean? A costume, it's, it's very rare that you get a get billed for a lot of extra things that are that happen in the process. So, I, I mean, the costume shops, are, are they're heroes to me, even though I know sometimes you do think, why does this little dress cost $4,000? But when you look at the, the amount of staff, the amount of real estate, the amount of people involved, like uh, I can give you a, an example about the kind of, the size of a team it might take to do 
uh, an Aladdin costume, for instance. You have the draper and their team. They have to have somebody who cuts it out. They have somebody who sews it. They have somebody that finishes it. So even if it's a small shop, it's at least four people. Maybe it's painted. You have to have a painter. You have to have that equipment, that space. Maybe it's painted and has a little beading on it. That's another department. So there's people in that department. And then there are who's collecting all of these beads, who is sourcing all of this dye, who is uh, hunting down the 20 pieces of cloth that might be in a single garment. So it grows. It's not just you and one person. It's really a village. When they say it takes a village, in our business, they, they, it really takes an, a metropolis to make it happen. So um, I think that's why. And and oftentimes I know after you've developed something, people hope that it will become less expensive after you've gone through this prototyping process. But usually on the first costume, the shop will lose money on the costume, which is sort of extraordinary when you think, why does this dress cost $4,000? So then they're kind of playing catch up a little bit uh, on the future companies, if you're lucky enough to have them. See, I'm learning something as as we go. It never dawned on me that, yeah, it's a one-of-a-kind original, Paris original, it's that <laughs> thing. Exactly. It's one, you're designing a hundred costumes that are totally unique. I was expecting you to say, well, Ken, these things have to last eight shows a week, be danced in like crazy, mm. be sweated in more than anything you yeah, can yeah, imagine, yeah. laundered and dry cleaned. And they're Paris Originals. If they're Barnes Originals, every single one yeah. of them. Yeah, you figure a garment that they make in the fashion industry for a runway literally only has to survive for about, I think a whole fashion show with 30 looks is about eight minutes, 10 minutes. So that is a big part of it. I didn't bring any of that up, but there is this the, the reality of sweating and the amount of wear and tear that a, a costume goes through in a, in a single evening of a show. Um, also, you want to make a costume. I would say this, but it, it's like you want it to look like a butterfly and wear like an Iron Maiden, right? So that the audience isn't like, you know, it's not like, you know, when you go to a theme park, you sort of understand this parade is going to happen five times today and that polyester double knit tunic can get thrown in the washing machine. And, you know, but on Broadway, I, I, I'm making a gross statement about, I'm sure that theme park parades are much more... Uh, artistically approached. But on Broadway, you want to feel like, you know, for the cost of this ticket, I am seeing this and it's just happening for me. One time, one time only. Even if it's Phantom and it's been running for 20,000 years, you want to feel like the clothes have a special quality to them. Even if it's modern dress, even if it's, you know, you don't want to, it's another thing, you know, like if you're doing Legally Blonde, you don't want everybody in the audience to be wearing what the actors on the stage are wearing because then the event is not as, doesn't feel as special somehow. So we're even though we do buy things and we do, you know, especially with the modern thing, it is a mix of created and purchased, but you want to try to find a balance that seems unique. And that relates to the fact that we, the purpose of it is to help tell the story. Any specific stories you can remember from seeing something in previews, you're sitting back, oh, I can't wait for this number. This is going to be so beautiful. All the girls are in their outfits or the guys, and they come out, and you're like, oh, my God. Yeah. That, that isn't right. i got to yeah. do this over. Oh, I, you know, it's funny. We started this interview talking about how you don't want to waste money. And if I could line up all the times I've wasted money, you'd be, you'd be appalled. I mean... 
there is something about it's a it's there, it's a magic alchemy really, and the audience is not to be underestimated. They are a part of it. So say you've designed and written and scored and created a moment, and it's it's your opening, and you need it to land in a certain way because it's going to set up how the story is being told, and it just sits there. You know, no matter how good the dress is, that is not going to be the dress. You know, you have to be willing to. I can use, if it's okay, use kinky boots as an example. When we went to Chicago, we made a lot of changes, and uh, probably half of the garments, maybe not quite half, but that the we call them the angels, but they're Lola's, you know, drag pals. Uh, so much of that changed, and it had to do with finding the right tone in a way for the piece because it's not Priscilla Queen of the Desert. You know, it's not that that kind of an evening. And some of the stuff was too over the top and some of it uh, was not good storytelling. And even though I didn't do it in a vacuum, but collectively through really smart producing and smart direction and smart collaborators, we were able to hone in on what the problems were with the with the wardrobe specifically, and quickly, like in a really a weekend, uh, I would say, sketch in a new a new visual, and we used pieces from took things from that and put them here and ran to there and implemented it here, and uh, and I'm so pleased with how that all then eventually came together, and it was a better design than. So yeah, there was a small, a smallish rack <laughs> of of drag items that are available for trick or treating. You can somebody wants a, a good drag costume. You're going to get some me. phone calls now. <laughs> uh, speaking of that collaboration, how much do you collaborate with the scenic designer? Mm. Because I once worked on a show which I shall not name. <laughs> that when we got the scenery next to the costumes, it was if, if someone threw up on the stage. <laughs> like, do you do you have to think about that backdrop? Oh my gosh, yes. You know, oftentimes the scenery, uh, the scenic designer, oftentimes is hired before we come into the picture, and I love that's my favorite. If I if I could, if there's one thing I could insist on, I don't say hire them first, uh, because they start developing the world inside the box, the world inside the proscenium, if there's a proscenium. So, for instance, if I may, I, I I'll use uh, David Rockwell, who I know you spoke to. I love that interview. Um, we did Dirty Rotten Scoundrels together, and I've worked with him many times. But I think that was the first time, and I went to see the set. I had just been hired. I hadn't. You know, I'd, I'd never even seen the film at this point. And I went to his their, his studio with Jerry Mitchell and Jack O'Brien. And they were working, you know, on the set. It was pretty far along. And they had this beautiful, beautiful, so, sort of what you think of the south of France, the sky in, in the south of France. And it was this beautiful blue color. And I thought, ah, I can see that if I put a person in orange in this space, that's going to be a really strong statement. That's going to, you know, it's, it's the opposite on the color wheel. It's really going to be, you know, you have to be, care- be careful with your warm palette. That's your ace in the hole. Things that are lovely and sea foamy and pale, they'll look like uh, to catch a thief. And, and that can be useful to us. So it actually informs ways that I can work within this beautiful, beautiful crystally world that David was, was developing 
So I love it when the space is the first thing to come along. Often, you know, it's funny, you never just work on one thing at a time. And I have to say, I wish I could say that the collaboration was more intense, more, you know, side by side than it oftentimes ends up being. Sometimes you have a couple of meetings and you share a couple of sketches and you, you know, you have a question a month into the process. What happened? What color is the sofa? <laughs> you know, what color is the armchair? But but in terms of actually being to, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, I don't think that that kind of collaboration happens as often as we would like it to. It's just because everybody is so busy. You know, you're always out of town and you've got five deadlines that are all happening at the same moment. And, you know, I've got right now, I've got, I think, what, I've got three shows running on Broadway and national tours. And so I'm on the road a lot and sometimes hard to get. And so the collaboration is tricky. But that kind of thing that you're mentioning, where you get there and it's like, oh my God, what have we done? That shouldn't happen. You may say, we may, you, you should say, this doesn't work, but at least it's beautiful. <laughs> well, that whole show shouldn't have happened. So I'm not asking. Wrong with that uh, I was going to ask you what your favorite piece of work was, but now I'm, Susan Stroman has inspired a new question here oh, on good. the podcast, which I'm calling the Smithsonian question, <laughs> which is if you had a choice of just one of your designs, oh. the Smithsonian calls and says, we got one, room for one. Great. Oh my gosh. I'll give you a show though. We won't say one dress or one Okay, suit. the whole what thing. What show of yours would you want thrown in there? Oh my goodness. This is like Sophie's Choice in some way. Like which child do I keep? You know, it's funny. I can, I, I'm torn between two, and I know that doesn't answer the question, but I'll explain why, if that's okay. It's, Start with it's two. cheating. <laughs> I know it's totally cheating, and the Smithsonian's going to reject one anyway. So, But the original production of Sideshow, it meant so much to me. It was uh, my Broadway debut. I, I thought it would take five years to make that debut. It took 20 years to make that happen. And we worked on it so long, and it was so, you know, of all the things I've worked on, whatever anybody thought, good, bad, different, huge fan, didn't care, whatever they thought, we created the event. There was nothing in it that we, that was where you later thought, I wish we had, I, we should have. It was, it was, we set out to make this thing happen, and it happened. It was all made by Barbara Matera, which was a huge, the, the craftsmanship of those costumes was extraordinary. So that comes to mind. That would be my column A choice. My column B choice would be the Drowsy Chaperone because it was an evening that just percolated along and I felt like all of the elements of the storytelling were equally delightful, if that's the right word. It just uh, I loved being a part of it. It was uh, joyous, so unexpected you know we opened in los angeles with no plan to come in and then uh i think it was woman in white closed quite unexpectedly and two weeks later there we were loading in the drowsy chaperone it was incredible and and uh and actually um the tobin foundation has a museum in uh san antonio and they bought all those sketches so they're not in the in the uh smithsonian but they are that design is all preserved in a museum in Texas. So that's really great. 
They're not there yet. <laughs> so maybe I'll give Sideshow to the Smithsonian since the others already <laughs> got a seat of honor. All right, my last question now, which uh, is my infamous genie question, which is so... Oh my gosh, so, I should know how to do yes, this. It's suited for you and Casey Nicolau, <laughs> who just did it a couple weeks ago. Uh, I want you to imagine that the genie comes to your door, okay. knocks on the door and says... Greg, thank you so much for this amazing outfit. It's incredible. And because of that, I want to grant you one wish. Just one. I want you to imagine and think, what's the one thing that you can't stand about Broadway? You're such a genteel guy. You're so nice and friendly and collaborative. What's the one thing that makes you so mad, that keeps you up at night, that goes, makes you swear? If only I could change this one thing that the genie would change in the snap of a finger. What would you want that genie to change about Broadway? About Broadway. Wow. You know, it's it's an interesting thing about... I think there's a kind of cynicism about people that love the theater. And I'm, I guess I'm speaking to people that write a lot of... That blog and write... Or that, not blog, but excuse me. That's okay. That's okay. <laughs> we, we, I can take it. I can take it. You can take it. <clears throat> but people that go on the chat rooms and all that. And I love to get that opinion. I love to see... What people think, you know, it's a raw, instinctual, it's their first experience and they are, you know, unafraid to share their thoughts and very passionate and I love that. But I think that oftentimes if something isn't working or something, or people, you know, nobody loves everything, not everybody loves everything equally. And they often say, well, they sat down because this is going to make a lot of money if we do this. And I just hate that because I have never in the 35 years I've been doing this ever sat down at a table where anybody said any words to that effect. We all want to tell a story, make it beautiful, make it unique, make it have meaning. So that attitude that there is a kind of cynicism doesn't, you know, I just don't know anybody that I have ever worked with, collaborated with that that has that. I'm not sure if I'm answering the question well, but I know when I read it, I think it's. It, I think, oh God, that's so hurtful. It's so, and it isn't at all. You know what we set out to do. We set out to make something joyous, and you know, if, if it's an entertainment, we wanted it to be, you know, joyously life changing. If it was, if it's a, a story within, with a different kind of meaning, we wanted you to come out and be changed or have a different perspective on life. That's really what the job is, ultimately. Well, I agree. And I want to thank you so much for being here. And also thank you. You know, your answer about the Smithsonian question just shows what kind of guy you are. Because I asked you what work would you want, of your work would you want to be in the museum? And you said a show where we all just got along and the story was told wonderfully. It wasn't about your designs. You're an incredibly collaborative guy. Oh. Uh, and we need so many more of you in the theater. <laughs> and it's obvious why you've been such a success. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for spending the time with us. Thank you, all of you, for listening. Next week, ooh, Greg, one of your producers, Daryl Roth, oh. next week. Thanks so much, and we'll see you then. Don't forget about the free Town Hall Teleseminar on December 2nd, 7 p.m. Check out the blog, theproducersperspective.com, for all the details and to register. We'll see you then.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. <laughs> 